For Radio Catskill, this is Rosie Starr. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, we'll hear more of my conversation with Art Hawker, who is the town of Tustin historian. Today, Art speaks about the iconic granary structure on Main Street in Narrowsburg. Sweetwater fishing guide Evan Padua has a Hooked on Fishing audio postcard from the Upper Delaware River Valley. Jeffrey Rose from Wild Yarrow Farm shares his summer garden ideas for mid-July. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country. But first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. Today marks the 500th day since Russia's wide-scale invasion of Ukraine. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky posted a video of himself visiting Snake Island. He calls it a sliver of land in a wide sea, proof that Ukraine will regain every inch of its territory. The BBC's Gordon Carrera has more. Today we are on our Snake Island, which will never be conquered by the occupiers. President Zelensky says in the video message, which shows him arriving with a small group of soldiers on a fast boat. Snake Island may be tiny, but it is a powerful symbol of resistance for Ukraine. On the first day of Russia's invasion last February, a Ukrainian border guard told a Russian warship in no uncertain terms where to go after being ordered to surrender. Russia took the island, but Ukraine later recaptured it. Laying flowers at a memorial, President Zelensky says what happened there is proof that Ukraine will one day regain all its territory. The BBC's Gordon Carrera. The U.S. is sending cluster bombs to Ukraine to help in its fight against the Russians. They open in the air and release scores of smaller bomblets. Unexploded rounds sometimes later explode and kill civilians. The U.S. has disposed disposed of the last of its stockpile of chemical weapons. NPR's Jeff Brumfield reports. At a facility in Kentucky, workers removed sarin nerve agent from a rocket, deactivated it, and destroyed it. In doing so, they officially eliminated the last chemical weapon in America's stockpile. Kingston Reef is the Pentagon official who oversaw the process. These are awful weapons, and the world is a safer and more secure place without them. Some nations continue to have undeclared chemical agents. Russia, notably, has tried to use small quantities to assassinate people. But thanks to a treaty known as the Chemical Weapons Convention, thousands of tons of agents have been eliminated from stockpiles the world over, making the threat of chemical warfare far less likely than it was a century ago. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. Police in Fort Worth, Texas, have made two arrests in Monday's mass shooting that killed three people. Miranda Suarez of member station KERA reports. Police have arrested 20-year-old Christopher Reddick Jr. and 19-year-old Brandon Williams. They're accused of firing into a crowd of hundreds of people in Fort Worth's Como neighborhood after an annual neighborhood party called Como Fest. Paul Willis, Cynthia Santos, and Gabriela Navarrete all died. Fort Worth Police Chief Neil Noakes says the investigation isn't over and more arrests are possible. But we want to make sure we take every measure we can to take anyone else who might possibly be involved in the custody as well. Police believe the shooting was gang-related and that some sort of altercation set off the shooting. I'm Miranda Suarez in Fort Worth. This is NPR News from Washington.
This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farm and Country. Coming up on today's show, Sweetwater Fishing Guide Evan Padua shares his Hooked on Fishing audio postcard for the Upper Delaware River. Jeffrey Rose from Wild Yarrow Farm shares summer garden ideas for mid-July. Let's begin with more of my conversation with Art Hawker, who is the Town of Tustin historian, speaking about the iconic granary structure on Main Street in Narrowsburg, New York. Thank you for joining us at our new time, 10 a.m. on Radio Catskill, for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. Earlier this year, I spoke with Art Hawker, who is the Town of Tustin historian. We met in Narrowsburg at the Tustin Historical Society, which is located on the lower level of the Tustin-Koshecton branch of the Western Sullivan Public Library. Art Hawker wears many hats and has a visual presence as a prominent member of our community. Last week in part one of our conversation, Art Hawker talked about his family history that dates back several centuries. And with some humor, we met the lively, innovative character, James H. Kirk. Now, here we are with part two. As a historian of the area, how would you paint a picture of the history, I don't know, as far back as you want, the last 100 or 200 years Describe life here along the Delaware River Valley where we are. Well, certainly uh, the natural resources and the beauty of the area uh, played a large part or continue to play a large part. Even back in the uh, early 1900s, wait, well, go back into the 1800s, once the railroad came through in 1848, and people could get out of the city areas, the urban areas, to the fresh country air, so to speak. The, you know, the boarding houses took off. Hotels were built. At the same time, on the on the commercial side, there was a lot of logging. There was bark was being harvested off the hemlock trees for tanning purposes. But not everyone was responsible in that regard, and they used up a lot of the resources. So then for a few decades, bluestone quarrying became kind of the king industry around, except, and then when concrete was developed, well, that kind of fell off. So agriculture, uh, town of Tustin was one of the premier poultry areas I remember reading an article, uh, the post office, the, the chicks used to come by mail. And the one year the, the postmaster was telling the newspaper reporter, that, yeah, he had like 20,000 baby chickens coming through the post office so far that spring. 
but almost everybody that had a farm was raising chickens. Uh, we have a road just up 97 called Cackletown Road, and you know, that's where they raised a lot of chickens. The trains came through. Back in the day, there was probably six trains a day coming through. Some were just passing through, but some were passenger. But there's an informational panel across the street from where we are, and it shows these baggage carts stacked high with eggs bound for New York City in that area. So it was really quite a... Uh, lucrative thing for the local farmers and so that kept the the area going and then tourism certainly you know once advertising would take off they would advertise toward the urban areas new york city in particular when the sportsman show started to be held back in the 40s down new york city but the chamber of commerce actually started going down there set up a booth and they had it set up like an old general store, and they would dress up in period costumes. We have a lot of photographic evidence of that. But, you know, they really pushed to market this area for hunting and fishing and fresh air, clean water, that sort of thing. I love learning about Cackletown Road. <laughs> I always knew that this area had a history of dairy farms, but... I didn't realize about the chickens. That's, I mean, it, considering what's going on, these recent history with avian flu, that would be quite a sight to and to manage all those eggs on a train and chickens in the mail. I don't know that much about it other than in reading the papers. It's interesting. Some of these farmers, the, the chickens that get stolen and the police were busy chasing the chicken thieves around and... Not just two or three chickens, but they'd come along, and, and I don't know how they did it, but they'd swipe them, a couple hundred of them. So maybe there were young ones, but yeah, that was a, a big thing. And of course, they had to heat the uh, the coops, so there was quite a few fires back then, hen houses burning down, and of course, then you lose your assets there. And you mentioned dairy. Yes, there were milk, what they called milk trains that would make their stops, pick up the farmer's milk, and get it to where it had to be processed. Farming, agriculture in general, we had uh, in this area also some, all, quite a few orchards, uh, Heinz family, the Hayes, Haza, Hayes, uh, depending on your pronunciation. They had very large orchards, mostly apples and, and fr other fruits, yes. Mm -hmm. Well, that makes me start to think about the granary that's at the end of Main Street, how that would have tied into the dairy farms and the chicken farms. Can we talk about the history of the granary? Does it go back as far as what you're saying? Absolutely, it does. Uh, actually, a fellow named John Branning, Mr. Branning, J.C., as he was known, set up a mill and... The current bridge that we go across now was built in 1953. Prior to that, there was an iron bridge, but it was slightly upriver, and that was built in 1899, and that was a toll bridge. And previous to that, there were a few iterations of covered wooden bridges, which kind of periodically got taken out by the ice. 
but those bridges were also toll bridges and it wasn't until 1927 that the bridge became free so you didn't have to walk across the river if you wanted to avoid the tolls you know but to get back to mr branning he established a mill it was called riverside mill and it was on the side of the street where the tustin cup is now but slightly upriver and then he eventually moved down to the other end of Main Street, where the current Honor Brands Narrowsburg Feed and Grain is. And he established his bigger mill there. And he sold coal and grain and, and processed feeds there. And they had a catastrophic fire there in think it was the 1940s and his whole operation burned down so they built a nice new mill across where the present one is and unfortunately that burned in uh, 1983 somewhere there and but that was rebuilt to what you see today that's the kind of the succession of mills that started on what you might call the north end of Main Street went down to the south, and that one burned. And That's really an impressive history. That mill represents visually and physically such an imprint that no matter what's going on on Main Street, that mill is there prominently fixed in the town. It's a beautiful part of history. It's quite amazing during one of my police days we were out with a helicopter looking for illegal growing plants <laughs> which are now legal but we were up around Cashecton somewhere and if you look down toward Narrowsburg from whatever altitude we were at you can see that mill sticking up it's it's almost from that distance it looks like a silver skyscraper and that's about all you could see from that vantage point sticking up above the trees it was was pretty neat yeah it's a four seasons iconic image of narrowsburg you've seen a lot you've read about a lot how would you like all of this knowledge and past what do you think? How does it benefit our community going into the future and in the present moment? Well, first of all, it gives people that are interested the knowledge of what occurred, maybe what buildings looked like, who people were, what their accomp accomplishments were, that sort of thing. Hopefully we don't have too many mistakes to learn by to avoid problems that may have occurred in the past, but... It's always good to know, well, so-and-so tried this or that, and, well, it didn't work out. I can't really cite anything specific at this point, but history needs to be preserved for many reasons and many interests. It gives people a sense of identity, a sense of what their culture might be. I mean, every small community has its own identity, I think, whether you're from Lake Huntington or... Keshecton or Lava or Darby Town, Beach Lake. Mm -hmm. To some extent or some level, you probably think in those terms. As the town moves on into the future, 
there's always changes and growth planned. Do you think that the town planning, zoning, do they rely on information from the past to help them plan the future? They do. I happen to be on the group that developed the latest version of the Town of Tustin Comprehensive Plan. And when you do the comprehensive plan, it actually takes into account the history of the community and how that applies to the future. Because the comprehensive plan is good for about five years, and then it's supposed to be reviewed, I believe. And uh, that's actually a, a mandated section in that. What do you mean mandated? It's a like a format that has to be followed, and part of it is public safety, the history of it. So these are all portions that have to be checked off and addressed in the comprehensive plan. And how about children? Do the Tustin youth or any youth in school or anywhere, are they privy to the history of the area? Do they have a, a class or a focus point in their education to learn about the past? I'm not aware of any at this point, no. Something maybe to think about in the future to give them a different perspective on things. Let's see, there must be something we haven't talked about that you're eager to share. I enjoy talking to people about Tustin. Part of what the historical group here does is uh, we occasionally get inquiries regarding a family. Somebody's looking for family. And again, to go back to the work that Emily Halleck and others have done, they've actually gone through the cemeteries and recorded the inscriptions on the tombstones. Now with modernization, you have things like the Find a Grave website. People can sit in their own homes and look this stuff up, but if it weren't for the people that came before us that recorded all this stuff and then put it, the data into the sites like that, it makes searching out your relatives quite a bit easier and give you information you may not know about. Let's talk about how to get involved in the Tustin Historical Society. Uh, give us a web page or an email. Yeah, we can be contacted at tustinhistory at gmail.com. It's a group that we meet the third Wednesday of every month. We meet down here at the History Room if people are looking for specific records, usually they just stop in the library here, and the library staff is very accommodating. They'll contact one of us, and whether we need to set up an appointment or whether we can drop what we're doing and run down and, you know, help folks out with whatever information. Sometimes they we're able to look things up for them real quick. Sometimes it takes a bit of research, but we welcome anybody, especially if they have a history interest. We can use their talents, that's for sure. We received what is called an absolute charter in 2011. Through That's through the hard work that Grace Johansson and Beth Peck did. 
but the actual group, Tustin Historical Society, kind of began as an informal gathering or effort and then got more formalized over over time but uh, so 2011 is not really reflective of how long the, the group has been doing things well i very much appreciate you taking the time to speak with us at radio catskill history is part of the farm and country landscape so before we close if there's anything else you'd like to say or add to our conversation. Thank you for your interest. Thank you for your ability to be a part of this effort. It's really impressive. There's more of my conversation with Art Hawker to share with you on the history of Tustin. Visit the Radio Catskill webpage, wjffradio.org. Scroll around, look for Farming Country for July 1st. Art Hawker is one of the eight contributing members of the Tustin Roots newsletter. More information is available by writing to tustinhistory at gmail.com or by writing P.O. Box 18, Narrowsburg, New York, 12764. I asked Radio Catskill volunteer and Sweetwater Fishing Guide Evan Padua to describe what it's like to navigate the muddy Delaware River during that patch of late June rain. Here is Evan sharing his audio postcard with us that describes two days and two different locations. Here we are, coming up on July 4th weekend. The river's got a little juice from Mother Nature, and they're a little bit high and a little bit muddy. Uh, when we first got that rain uh, in June 24th, 25th, the surface water from the rain drained into the river and kind of turned it brown without raising the river a whole lot. So right now it's uh, clearing up and we're shaping up for a nice July 4th with a little bit of higher water and maybe a little more rain in the forecast. Um, on those muddy days, it's good to target lakes or upper reaches that didn't get as much rain. The river uh, was chocolate milk colored. Calicoon rose from about maybe 2,000 CFS to um, over 4,000 overnight and turned brown. That's cubic feet per second. So when the river jumps a whole lot, uh, what happens is there's a lot of debris in the water and it's a little makes it a little tough for fishing. But sometimes it can be really good on the rise too. So you have to just check it out. But uh, I chose to hit a lake today to stay off the water when it was real chocolate milk. So far we've got two or three largemouth bass, one on a soft plastic jig and a couple on spinnerbaits and up to four or five pounds um, largemouth in a local pond in the Pennsylvania area. And it's a good time of year to hit bass in kind of deeper water off of points. You can get them in the shallows too, but Right now, deeper water off of points are, are really good places to target um, if you're targeting largemouth bass. So uh, to all you folks out there, got to get out in the rainstorms, got to get out on nice evenings. Right now we have the sun setting bright to the west. So it's a beautiful evening. We've got rainbow out here and uh, we're catching fish. We're out here on the upper Delaware River south of Lordville and 
we have had a little bit of a rain event the last few days so the water is a little bit higher than it was last week and it's got a little stain to it as i had mentioned um earlier and this stain is starting to clear up a little bit and the river's on a steady drop and the fish seem to be pretty well stabilized the rainbow trout are very active in fast water there's a lot of bugs hatching we've got isonychias sulfurs like cahills and a bunch of other mayflies hatching caddis as well um, and the trout are active today we've seen a bear we saw beavers bald eagles snapping turtles not to mention countless songbirds and flycatcher birds and all kinds of different things and then the fish species uh, we've got i think six or seven we have fall fish smallmouth bass walleye striped bass rainbow trout brown trout and i think that about rounds it out for today so we've had a pretty good day this water is kind of prime for this trout and like mixed species fishing it's mid 60s mid to low 60s and uh, the water temperature is kind of prime for those those kind of fish. So it's been a pretty good day. It should stay pretty good with this kind of conditions. And as long as we stay with a little bit of cool cloudy days and maybe a little more rain. Get out and wet a line. Be careful, wear a life jacket and go out and catch some fish. This has been Evan Padua bringing you Hooked on Fishing. Take it easy. For Radio Catskill, this is Rosie Starr. We're at high summer, and I'm back in Koshekton visiting Jeffrey Rose at Wild Yarrow Farm. You can tell we're at Wild Yarrow Farm. There's some birds chirping in the background over here. I just needed to ask him, you know, it's mid-July, so what should we be doing now in our gardens? Hi, Jeffrey. Hi, Rosie. Thanks for coming back. It's nice to see you again here. As far as what to plant now, you can put in broccoli and kale for fall planting, for a fall harvest. We have to wait a few more weeks before we put in some new lettuces or spinach or arugula because the heat will cause them to bolt. And by bolt, that's when the lettuce it sends up a flower to make seed. And at that point, the lettuce becomes bitter and isn't useful anymore. Uh, except for one type of lettuce called celtus, which is a stem lettuce, which we have in our garden here that I could show you. When the bolt happens and it sends up the stem, it's fat and you can cook that and treat it as if it were like an asparagus, which is an interesting and unusual kind of lettuce. One other thing, uh, when the mustard greens are probably bolting in your garden now, you could, those flowers are edible. And if you stir fry them, they'll soften up and they'll lose the heat. So it's a nice little addition to your stir fries. Oh, I love that because I eat the young green leaves and the mustard early in the spring. But now I'll clip those little white flowers off. I know. I think the bees like them too. They do. You can also uh, succession plant beets and carrots and radishes now. You can do those every couple of weeks so that you've got a nice harvest of them going through the summer. And then, of course, it's time to make sure we're doing our maintenance in the garden, getting out there and weeding and uh, making sure that everything looks healthy, pulling out things that look diseased or attacked by insects. And then another task for around this time of year is to get our garlic bed ready. Pretty soon it'll be time to plant the garlic, and if you've got the bed ready, you're more apt to get it done. So that's my advice for now. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you, Rosie. Nice to see you. Located in Koshekton, New York, Wild Yarrow Farm is on Instagram and Facebook 
and has a fabulous website. We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteer, Sweetwater Fishing Guide, Evan Padua. Special thanks goes to our guests, Town of Tustin historian Art Hawker, and to Jeffrey Rose from Wild Yarrow Farm on Turnpike Road in Coshecton, New York. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening local to Farm and Country and supporting Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Listen on air at 90.5 FM on your phone or smart speaker. Online at WJFFRadio.org. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org There's always a story behind the music, how the song was written, why the song was written. I'm Kathy Geary. Join me for Now and Then. Now and Then, Saturday afternoons at 3 on Radio Catskill. Listen local. Hi, I'm Mimi Bradley, Radio Catskill's development manager.